Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 88 of The Nathan Seward Show. The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. Welcome to the show, guys. I hope you're having a great week so far. Super excited to bring Scott Young on today to talk about ultra learning. If you have any questions for Scott, uh, either now as you're watching live or in the recording, fire them in here. We'll do our best to answer those either now or later on. I know you're going to love this episode. I'm really excited to talk to Scott. Big week so far. We've got the Peru trip and the adventure kicking off this weekend. So my focus has gone from enrolling people to come on the trip with us to now that part of it's over. And so all the focus shifts to the adventure itself and how that's going to play out. So looking at logistics, when everyone's flying in, the intentions that we're setting, making sure all the uh, equipment and packing lists are all all out there for everyone to, to be as prepared as possible. So super excited about that. Uh, I'll be offline next week, but you guys can look out for, for lots of photos and stuff from Peru and Machu Picchu once we get back, which I'm super excited. And if you're not coming, I'm sorry that you're not coming. Would have been great to have you guys there. Cool. Let's dive into the interview with Scott. So let me tell you about Scott. Scott is a writer who undertakes interesting self-education projects such as attempting to learn MIT's four-year computer science curriculum in only 12 months and also learning four languages in just one year. I've struggled to master English this far. And Scott's uh, just got a new book out, which we're going to talk all about, which explores the art of mastering hard skills to accelerate your career and your life. Uh, he lives in Vancouver in Canada, and he joins me now. Scott, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you. Thanks for yeah, joining Yeah, yeah. So this is a huge topic. A friend of mine messaged me last night when he saw mm-hmm. that we were uh, going live together, and he said, uh, I just read that guy's description. I think this is the best guest you've had so far. So, <laughs> Well, hopefully I'll live up to such, uh, <laughs> such high standards there. Now I'm a little nervous. I'm pile the pressure on yeah. you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, right up, please make sure you do not disappoint. <laughs> yes, yes. I'll do my best. I'll do my best. <laughs> the new book is called uh, Ultra Learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, why'd you write it? So learning has been kind of my obsession for like the last 10 years. And I kind of got started into this sort of randomly. So I mentioned in the book that about 10 years ago, I was a university student and I had the opportunity to go to France on exchange. And I was really interested in learning French. I thought it would be so cool that, you know, I'd spend this year studying abroad in France and like I'd come back and I could parler en français and it would, it would be great. Right. And I'm about four months it, in. Right? Yeah, I'm about four months in and I feel like, you know what, things aren't going as well as I'd hoped. I'm in the the class and I'm near the bottom of my French class. By the way, it was only after that I learned that, well, the reason why I'm in the bottom of my French class is most people who go to another country to learn the language have spent a lot of time studying it beforehand, which I had not done. And uh, it was a little bit discouraging. I'm, I'm surrounded by people who speak to me in English, including my French friends. And it just kind of felt like, you know what, maybe I can't do it. Maybe it's not enough time to really learn uh, a language. And I was sort of complaining about this to someone back home. I was saying, you know, what, it's just not really working that well. What do you recommend? This person had lived in uh, Quebec for a number of years. And so I knew he spoke French. And I was like, what do you think I should do? And he's like, have you ever heard of this guy, Benny Lewis? I was like, "Ah, I've never heard of this guy before. Who's Benny Lewis? And Benny Lewis has become somewhat famous now, but he had just started his blog back then. So I'm very lucky that I encountered him. But his blog was called Fluent in Three Months. And just from the like fluent in three months, just as soon as you hear that word or that phrase, and especially when you've been struggling for more than three months to learn a language, your first instinct is, oh, this is total BS, right? Like there's no way that you can learn a language this quickly. But I kind of held off from like judging it too harshly as, you know what, maybe he knows something that I don't. So I'm I'm not going to just sort of just completely dismiss it. 
maybe there's something he knows that I don't. And so I wrote an email and I met him in Paris. And the thing that I learned from that encounter was really, this was my first introduction to what I call ultra learning or this aggressive strategy for learning hard things and doing it on your own. And what I learned wasn't that he had some magic technique. It wasn't like, oh, there's one trick, there's one simple trick that if you use this, you'll be able to learn a language so much easier, but rather that he had a completely different philosophy towards approaching learning. So while I was kind of studying at home and then just feeling kind of timid and hopefully I could be ready to speak in French to people, when he was learning a language, he was pretty fearless about going up and having conversations with people when he clearly wasn't ready. And this tended him towards going to closer to complete immersion when he was learning. And then that meant that he was getting a lot more practice. And that combined with a lot of, you know, sound learning principles allowed him to learn much more quickly, often getting to quite reasonable levels in just a short period of time, maybe even as low as three months. And so this kind of was a little bit of a light bulb moment for me because I'd always been interested in learning and always been interested in subjects and doing different things. But this was the first time I saw someone who was doing this kind of approach where you take this very aggressive challenge and you just try it really intensely and just kind of go over the top because it never occurred to me before. You know, everyone always talks about learning, you know, it's about, you know, just doing it slow and steady and doing whatever feels most comfortable. And this was very uncomfortable. This was very extreme. And so that kind of intrigued me, that idea. And sort of from both his example and some other examples that I documented in the book, I kind of got interested in, in doing this approach. And so that was about 10 years ago. And so I've since done sort of my own projects, including a language one similar to Benny Lewis. And I wanted to write this book to kind of share that inspiration that also helped me learn things, but also to show people that if you want to get good at something, there's just so many more options than you're aware of. And so often there's a lot of skills that you could get a lot better at that, you know, you just don't think about doing the things that might actually really work that well. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's super exciting. I've been trying to do Duolingo for uh, mm. Spanish lately, which mm-hmm. is kind of cool. I don't know if Duolingo is included in, <laughs> in the process of learning a language, but yeah. uh, it's challenging. I think you, you touched on something that I think a lot of people feel that if I just go to this country, by mm-hmm. osmosis as just being in the country, I yeah. want to learn to speak the language and it's often it often ends in frustration and disappointment well i mean that's that's one of the things i think there's kind of two different people that we talk about when we're talking about learning languages so one are the people who are like maybe yourself you're learning in a non-speaking environment so you're not traveling you're in an english-speaking environment and you're trying to learn another language. And that has a lot of its own challenges because obviously, you know, immersion is great. And so sometimes this can lead to this grass is greener feeling where if only I was, you know, in the country that spoke it, then all my problems would disappear. And then you talk to people that actually go to those countries and they find that a lot of the problems they had at home still exist in this other place. So Although it does tend to be the case that if you live somewhere for really long enough, especially I think in European countries where the language tends to be a little bit more approachable, you will find that someone's lived in Spain for five, six years. They can probably speak Spanish all right. Uh, However, I've talked to that. I I remember talking to a guy who was living in South Korea for 13 years. So 13 years is not a trivial amount of time. And he had uh, quite, you know, he knew a bit of Korean, but like not enough to carry on an hour long conversation by any means. And so he lived essentially his whole life in English, despite the fact that, you know, most people in Korea don't speak English or they don't speak it very well. 
And so this really limits you. This is just your whole life is lived in this little bubble of English where you can get by. And so obviously, you know, the strategies for learning a language, if you have to learn it at home versus in another country are going to be somewhat different. But I think this whole idea of ultra learning or really figuring out what works and and doing what needs to be done, even if that can be a little scary or frustrating at first, is so important because otherwise you just get in this zone of comfort where you feel, you know, you feel safe and you're putting in your little bit of effort every day, but you never really do the thing that needs to happen in order to actually be able to use the skill that you're practicing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it could be uh, translated to so many things in life, right? That we're mm-hmm. uh, I, I, thinking in terms of entrepreneurs, it's around sales, right? We'll do everything, oh, wow. but just Definitely. go out and, and sale, sell the thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. The thing that make the most difference. Absolutely. So I lived in uh, Tokyo for four years, and uh, I wanted to learn Japanese, and mm-hmm. um, I got a Japanese partner, thought that was the best option to, mm-hmm. to make that yeah. work and then got a tutor and started working through and I got to a point where mm-hmm. I just couldn't remember enough mm-hmm. words like I just couldn't yeah I stalled I plateaued yeah so am I just not meant to learn languages or am I doing something no wrong? no I don't think so and you know again everyone has little problems and little difficulties that they overcome so I want to make it clear that like you have to look at your individual situation so one of the things I try to talk about in this book is I try to break down learning into principles so you can kind of self-diagnose okay this is sort of where I'm getting off track so I would say you did a lot of things right you got a tutor you were practicing you were living in the country uh, you got a partner uh, so I mean all of these things are things that should help you learning Japanese And I don't know exactly what level you reached. I know for myself, because uh, when I did the language learning uh, project that you mentioned in the introduction, uh, we went to my friend and I who were doing this, we went to four countries, Spain and Brazil, which are European languages, Spanish and Portuguese. But then we also went to China and Korea, which are Asian languages. And one thing that I found that was different between the two of them is that for European languages, I felt like just pure immersion with a little bit of grammar practice was probably enough. That if you just did that, you would just kind of bootstrap your way to learning new words and phrases and it worked. For Chinese, I found that because they have a different linguistic base, I found it actually really helpful to kind of what you were talking about, just sort of massively expand your vocabulary. So there are a lot of softwares that you can use that will allow you to deal with that particular issue of how do you remember all of the new words that you're learning. So one of them in particular is you know, space repetition systems. So a, a really popular open source one is called Anki, A-N-K-I. And you can basically make flashcards. And the innovation behind it is just that it times when to give you a flashcard based on when you're going to forget it. So I don't want to suggest that, oh, doing flashcards is how you learn the whole language. There's, you know, a lot more to it than that. And having actual natural situations, practicing with people is super important. And I think it's probably the thing most people miss. But again, if you're dealing with a specific problem of, I can't remember enough vocabulary, then you can just actually go through the process of, okay, let's just add 20, 30, maybe 100 words a day. And you're just going through this. And if you have the process for making sure you're reviewing it in a space frequency so you don't forget it, you know, if you get, if you added like 10,000 words to your vocabulary, you would be quite proficient if you also had the opportunity to practice regularly. So again, I think self-diagnostic, this kind of like, okay, what are my weaknesses? What are my stumbling blocks? Analyzing that and then figuring out what are the tools I can use to get over that is very important for learning. Yeah. And you're sort of saying there is a tool for everything. There is And in particular, there's an ultra learning tool for everything. Yeah. Well, the idea behind ultra learning is, is I kind of define it as a strategy for self-directed learning. That's also aggressive. And this is kind of a broad definition. And in the book, I try to give these like really vivid examples so you can get a feeling for what I mean. But the reason for that is 
that so often when we think about learning, we think about going to school, right? Like I just got to go to a classroom and have someone just talk at me and tell me what to do. And the problem is that often doesn't work. For one, schools have to kind of, they have to teach to the average, right? They have to blend their curriculum to do what, you know, most people want. And for a lot of schools, they also blend to whatever the teacher thinks is important, which is not necessarily what you think is important. So we all remember sitting through classes where the teacher was going on about something that I I don't even know why they're talking about this. I don't care about it. And then also we've dealt with situations where, you know, we want to learn a particular skill, but there isn't something that fits our life. It's a class. And so that's really important. And then the aggressiveness part of it is not so much just doing something with intensity and obsessiveness, but of really figuring out what do you need to do in order to learn effectively. And sometimes that's not the thing that comes the most automatically. And so, you know, we're talking about uh, language learning. One of the good examples is actually practicing with people often doesn't come automatically. And I mean, you talked about sales and how like actually going out and doing sales is not something that people, you know, people would want to do a lot of other things that they could avoid doing that hard step. Yeah, well, how much of it is, uh, I know for me and a lot of my clients, like there's a fear of humiliation, you know, the idea of like not wanting to embarrass themselves or look silly. And uh, I imagine that's going to be one of the biggest things, right? Absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny because how we got in touch, so I don't know whether I can bring this up, but one of the people that we've actually both had some working relationship with, so this is the connection point of how we're having this conversation, is uh, Tristan de Montebello. And so Tristan de Montebello is actually in my book because a couple years ago, he told me, you know what, I'd like to try some kind of ultra learning project. And I was like, okay, that's cool. Like, what would you, what would you like to do? And he was like, well, I, I have a guitar course online. I'm, he's a musician. He's like, maybe I'd like to learn piano. And I was in the process process of trying to collect case studies for this book. And I thought this is the thing, me being selfish. I was thinking, well, that's, that's a little boring, right? Like if you're already good at music and you do another musical instrument, like, okay, but maybe people are just like, you're just good at music. And so I kind of pushed him a little harder and he's like, okay, what, what about, what about public speaking? And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I hadn't thought about public speaking before. And he went on to have one of the most dramatic successes that like I could possibly imagine that basically over a period of about seven months, He went from having very little experience public speaking, just doing a handful of speeches in his life, to being in the top 10 for the world championship of public speaking. And I know he's now like that's his full time job is doing a speaking consultancy. And I know he worked with you for some uh, business coaching as well. So that's definitely a situation where like the main obstacle to getting good at public speaking is that no one likes standing on stage and being booed and like being rejected and stuff. And so if you can just sort of dive through and push through those feelings, though, I mean, the results you can get are often quite impressive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let, let's shout out to these guys. So it's Tristan uh, de Montebello and yeah. his business partner is Michael Gendler and I got to work Michael with Gendler, him. Michael Gendler, yeah. I got to work with him for 18 months. Uh, Michael transitioned oh, out great. of the job and into that business at the time and they did yeah. uh, ultra speaking. So check out ultraspeaking.com. Mm-hmm. And there's a real large mission behind their business like there is for you yeah. no doubt that uh, they want to help people really learn to express themselves and learn to fully self-express, mm-hmm. you know, and overcome some of those fears and anxieties and some of the stuff that we're talking about. Absolutely. Uh, so those guys are awesome. Go and, go and check them out. And thank you, Tristan, for connecting us. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of this idea of the beginner's mindset, right? Like how do yeah. we, we're not used to failing and, and so much of it is as an adult, when you get into adult learning or I think you call it uh, self-education, um, self, yeah, self-directed learning. There's lots of terms floating about there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's getting into that beginner's mindset, and it's kind of yeah a little bit rusty. We haven't learned something new. We mm-hmm. haven't tried and failed, tried and failed, tried and failed for for a long time. Um, yeah. So how do you kind of embrace that? How do you get back into well, it? 
I think you, I think you've hit the nail on the head. So many of us, what happens is that we, in order to learn things well, you kind of have to suck at them, right? Like in order to learn something is to be bad at it, at least in the beginning, right? We sort of forget And so, yeah, yeah. And I think that there's a lot of bias towards thinking that learning is something that children do. And I don't want to say like, obviously, you know, we, you know, everyone waxes poetically about lifelong learning, but then you sit them down and you say, oh, hey, we're going to learn a computer program. People are but I'm not a computer programmer or like, oh, we're going to learn French. He's like, no, no, I don't learn languages. I don't, I, I, I learn the things that I'm good at, right? Like that's what everyone says to themselves. And so I think part of that problem is that we, we view sort of when you're a child, it's okay to be bad at things. It's okay to like embarrass yourself and ask the stupid questions and do dumb stuff. When we're an adult, we have to be serious. You know, we're not allowed to play. We're not allowed to, you know, explore things. We have to be good at things and showcase our competencies. Otherwise, people might think badly of us. And so I think, you know, really embracing that is it, there is a kind of beginner's mindset to it where you have to embrace the kind of oh, actually, I'm not good at this. And what does that feel like? And also, how do I how do I get good at this? How do I get over my weaknesses? So I, I think that's a very interesting process. Hey, guys, thanks for watching. Thanks for tuning in. If you're watching now or you're watching mm-hmm. the replay, uh, feel free to leave any comments for Scott. And we'll try and get back to those you know, through them during the show or either later on after the show. I love this idea. We're kind of you know talking about language learning a lot. And I know... Yeah. More than just language, but I'm curious. I love this idea of a year of no English and go. <laughs> what was yeah. the, the craziest thing that happened, or the funniest story that happened during that year? Oh man, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of funny stories. So one one specifically to the language learning point of it, because we did you know we did this for a year long project. So you can imagine like not speaking your native language for a year. It's not actually the difficulty is not not speaking English for a year. It was actually resetting it every three months. Yeah. So every three months it's like, oh my God, we're back to zero again. And in the beginning we were extremely strict about it. Like we were like no exceptions to this policy. And then we get to like Asia and Korea and there starts to be like a few little exceptions. So I don't want to say that we were a hundred percent perfect. There's some guy did a review and they said he didn't speak English not even once. So I was like, well I wish that were a hundred percent true. There's probably a few exceptions later on, but I think it's one of those examples where if you set the policy of, of okay, I'm not going to speak English, you get a lot closer to the mark, even if there were one or two exceptions, than if you have the policy of, well, I'm going to try as much as I can. And then you end up only actually speaking the language you're trying to learn maybe 10% of the time. But one of the stories I can think of that was quite funny is that we had a friend who spoke Spanish, but his I think it was his then fiance did not. <laughs> and so we had, we were having dinners with him because he was our friend. And we're like, I'm like speaking to this woman, this poor woman who doesn't speak any Spanish. And I'm speaking to her in Spanish. And then my friend would like translate what I just said in English. Cause I was like, I was like refusing to break this no English rule. And she found it amusing because she knew we were doing this big project and taking it really seriously. But it definitely was amusing to have a conversation through a translator and like hear your own words retranslated yeah. back in to English, which you were in your head kind of doing the opposite. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So that was definitely a funny moment. Another really funny moment is our first night in, uh, in Korea, we stayed in this like dorm room type place. And there was this sort of older kind of caretaker woman who was living there. And we arrived at the nighttime. So the, like the daytime manager wasn't there. She was, she lives there and she was sort of taking care of us and getting us moved in. And we had to do all this paperwork and she didn't speak any English. And so like English wasn't an option. And we're really struggling to do this in Korea because this is day one, right? We have done just very minimal practice like a year before when we were planning on going on the trip. And we were having this whole interaction with her and it was a struggle, but we did manage to get through it and get the paperwork signed and, you know, IDs and this kind of thing. 
And then about two months later, we found out that she actually grew up in China. And so she speaks fluent Chinese and we had just been to China. So we were okay in Chinese, but neither of us considered the idea that the other person could speak Chinese. So we never like got to that point of discovery of like, oh, actually we do have a language in common. We just weren't using it. Yeah. Um, it was just kind of like, well, I'm thinking we're in Korea. Why would this, you know, elderly Korean woman know Chinese and then vice versa? Why would, you know, yeah. so white guy and an Indian guy know, um, <laughs> no Chinese. So yeah, little funny moments like that. Oh man. I think that's a beautiful metaphor for life. You know, how many things we have in common that we never, yeah. never can. Yeah, absolutely. Let me bring up this uh, question from Donna because I really appreciate sure. it. Uh, great subject. Thank you, Scott and me. Let's be clear that this is my show and I'm putting it together. <laughs> uh, start if you just want yeah. to be able to start getting through all the things you want to read and learn. This is a great question. Mm-hmm. Looking for some yeah. actionable steps because uh, I think a lot of people like me, I've, I go to a bookstore with yeah. great intention and I'm excited by the title and I have a pile of like yeah. 17 books that I feel really proud of myself for buying them. But uh, don't even get around to working through them. How would you approach that? So I don't want to like, let me just be clear here that like there's, there's many different approaches to this. So I'm going to just suggest a couple ideas for you to start, but you really need to figure out what works for you. And part of the reason I wrote this book is to give people more options and not to be like, this is the right way to do it. So if you don't do this, you're a failure. So what I'll say is that uh, I think there's different ways you can approach this. So one approach, and I think particularly with books, because that's the way the question was asked, is that for me, my thinking in my head is how can I maximize time spent reading as opposed to number of books finished? And so it depends on what your goal is. And my feeling is that there's an infinite number of books that I want to read. And so I know I will be happier if I spend more of my time reading than if I spend less of my time reading. And so somewhat paradoxically, the way that I've done this is by never like feeling the need to finish a book. And so I read books and I read like 50 pages. And then if, if that feels like, yeah, I kind of got the gist of this idea and I don't really need to read further, that's fine. So there's books on this bookshelf right here that I read the first 50 pages of and like, yeah, I kind of get the thesis of this and I don't really feel the need to finish it. And then there's other books that, you know, you savor it, you read it, and then you discuss it like years after and you're reading it over and over again. So with books, that's one approach. With the other approach that I like to think about is thinking... Mm. I think like right, someone like they uh there's usually one good idea in every book and it's usually about twenty or thirty pages. And if you go to a publisher mm-hmm. and say, Hey, I've got this great thirty page book, yeah. I'm sure you found out. They go, you come back yeah. when you've got three hundred pages and and flesh it out with some stories. There's yeah, job. there's quite a few books that could have just been blog posts that someone decided they wanted a publishing contract for. I, I'm really hopeful that this is not one of them. This book I actually spent a lot of time to try to cut away the other ones. But I mean, of course, I will leave that to the people reading it to judge. But I think the other thing I would say too is that for me, when I'm thinking about learning projects, is that a lot of us have like a million little things that we want to learn. And the problem is that that diffuse focus of like, well, I've got a million things I want to learn means that you tend to go this path of least resistance. And so I find with reading books, because, you know, unless it's a really difficult book that you know is really important, you have to get through, reading is reading. However, when we're talking about learning public speaking, for instance, you know, reading a book on public speaking and standing up and giving a speech are kind of different activities. Like one of them is going to be a lot harder, require more willpower and that kind of thing. And so for me, when I'm talking about ultra learning projects, I kind of like this frame of, you know, to go back to Benny Lewis, my first sort of inspiration of this, like you have a little challenge, you have a little project that, hey, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it in this amount of time and I'm going to focus on it. And the reason I find that valuable is because very often it's this frustration barrier that keeps us from learning things, you know, that the reason you don't learn French or pro programming or salsa dancing or or one of these things is just because there's kind of some willpower to get over it. 
So again, I kind of given two sort of opposite strategies. My approach for reading books, which I find, you know, my goal is to just maximize reading time is never hesitate to buy books, never hesitate to put them down and, and just spend as much time reading as you can. And I would, one habit of doing that is just focus on, you know, how many pages per day are you reading or how many minutes per day are you spend reading? And if you can focus on that metric, I would focus on that over number of books. But on the other hand, if there's some skills that you want to approach that are kind of behind this moat, so to speak, where you have to get over some frustration first, then then I usually find that it, it makes sense to like set this sort of focused concrete project. But that's me. Nice. I was just reading a blog post from Seth Godin today and he was talking mm. about how one of his strategies is to, to, to get off social media and stop sort of the habit of just checking the phone in any yeah. you know, brief moment, heaven forbid we should have you know, three minutes of boredom yeah. in a day. He now carries a book in his hand at all times so that anytime he's kind of bored or tempted to go for his phone, he flicks a book open and reads a couple of pages. Mm-hmm. It was kind of cool because so many... That is very, yeah, that is very interesting. No, you know what I think about even myself, one of the little uh, things you can do is have books on your phone. I mean, it sounds like, kind of, but you can get the Kindle app for your phone and just have at least one book on the Kindle app. And then when you're, you know, sitting in traffic or well, probably not traffic, but sitting on your commute or I don't want to cause any car accidents. So if you're listening to this right now, don't whip open your book and start reading on the freeway. Yeah. yeah. But if you're, you know, you're sitting between meetings, you got 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. I think a lot of us go for that. Well, let's seek some novelty. And I think part of that is just, you don't have any alternatives, you know, around you right now and so engineering your environment like like the book in the hand is a great way to do that so you can maximize learning so you're kind of uh bringing something up you know i I didn't go to university i was a pilot so i went to flight school instead of university Mm. but i always kind of had some stigma around not being smart or you know not being you know book smart quote unquote yeah and so oftentimes i'll uh you know read like your stuff about ultra learning and I'll think, oh, that's great. I'm sure Scott was like uber intelligent before he started ultra learning and it's probably like way ahead yeah. of me. Like this is probably not for me. Mm-hmm. No, you know what? I think a lot of people have that reaction and I think it's a really difficult belief structure, I think, to talk about because on the one hand, it is true that people have different talents, you know, like I'm never going to be Michael Jordan, right? Like I'm going to pick up a basketball. I'm never going to, I'm probably never going to be able to slam dunk. I'm probably not tall enough <laughs> and I'm probably not going to be extremely good at it. Now, does that mean I can't get better at basketball? Does that mean I couldn't enjoy basketball as a hobby or sport? Well, no, obviously not. But I think that's part of the if difficulty here is that we have an emotional reaction to things like learning. So you hear learning and you think, well, I didn't go to college or maybe my skills are more kind of tactile or visual. And so, you know, I'm a really good pilot, but maybe I'm not really good at math or, or calculus or something. And, and so you get this feeling about it and then you seek examples in your past experience or outside in the world to justify, okay, why I I don't want to learn these things. And so I think the right way to approach it is not to even deal with those feelings rationally, not even to deal with like, well, I'm going to make a good argument of why, like why everyone can learn. Because the thing is, if you feel like you can't learn X, then me giving you a lecture about why you can really learn X, that's not going to work. Right. And so I think the right way to think about it is just to recognize that we have these feelings and these emotions about it. And it's okay not like not everyone has to learn everything. So my goal isn't to say that, you know, if you really hate something, you have to learn it right now. But just to recognize that we make these assumptions on this limited past experience that, you know, you were like thinking about my French experience when I was talking at the beginning of it, that I was near the bottom of my class. I think I even got a D on the final exam. And this wasn't because I was dumb and it wasn't because I couldn't learn languages as, you know, later I could. 
But the reason why is because I was in an environment where I was being compared with other students who had had more experience than me. And they had had experience learning languages. And that made me feel bad. And it made me feel that, you know, I wasn't as good as they were and that I couldn't do it. And I think we often don't realize how often we're doing that. That, you know, I, I took some salsa classes recently and I was near the bottom of the class. And it's only when you dig in and you talk to other people, it's like, oh, yeah, I've been dancing my whole life. I've, this is my first salsa class, but I was doing ballet when I was a right. kid or doing this later. And you, you kind of, you don't, you're not aware of that. Or, or programming is another example. How many intro programming classes you go to a university where they're like the kids who get the good grades in the class have been doing it since they were 10, right? So you feel like you're not smart enough, but really you just haven't had the right experiences or the right methods or the right teachers. And so the thing I want people to feel is not, you know, if you feel bad about learning something, you know, my goal is not to change that opinion overnight, but rather to just open yourself up to the possibility that you might be wrong. Open yourself up to the possibility that you might just not have found the right method. And then also in combination with that, just getting comfortable with being frustrated, just you know, it's okay to start something and be like, wow, I'm terrible at this. And it's okay to be the worst in the class. It's okay to feel bad about it. And I think if you can do those things, there's, there's, I think really truthfully, my honest belief is that there's nothing anybody, like if you want to learn anything, you can learn it if you approach it the right way. It's just that so many of us straitjacket ourselves into not doing things that we just didn't feel we were excellent at before. And I think that's really unfortunate because, you know, like my experience, if I had that experience learning French and just said, you know what? I can't do it. I wouldn't have learned French and I wouldn't have learned any of the other languages I learned later. So I don't know. I think that it's, it's really challenging to overcome. Yeah. Thank you for going there and sharing that. It's, um, yeah. You know, think about it because it's, it, it's a balance, right? Because you're not saying mm-hmm. that learning a new skill is going to be easy. You're going to say, well, to correct me yeah. if I'm wrong, but you're saying there are strategies that you can take for each phase of, of skill acquisition that are going to make it more efficient, and there's better ways to go about the learning. It doesn't mean it's going to be super easy, but you have to let go of the challenges of the past in a way. Well, the way I would put it is that there are lots of skills that society expects every member of society to learn. And we all dutifully learn it because it's in our culture to learn those things. So for instance, reading is quite a complicated skill. If we went back 300, 400 years, almost everyone's illiterate. To read would be like to have a PhD in physics, like it's a really advanced skill. And so if you were to go back 400 years and have someone say, oh, no, I can't do that reading thing. That reading thing is for really smart people. I can't do it. They would be justified seeing that the way looking out at the world that, you know, actually most people don't read. And so why should I expect that I can read? And now everyone can read, right? Or almost everyone can read. And it doesn't mean that everyone is an equally good reader. Like I don't, like that's obviously, you know, it's still true that some people are really good readers and some people struggle and some people have particular learning disabilities that make reading a struggle. And yet we still expect them to learn to read at least at a beginner level. And so this kind of tension between the fact that we all kind of have this potential to learn almost anything, but that we often don't, And yet at the same time, there will be differences in where people end up with skills or how easy they find it to learn skills. Like these two facts can simultaneously be true, but yet our minds have a hard time reconciling it. Yeah. (laughs) That's really brilliant. You've really got me thinking. Sorry, Austin, and thought listening to you. One thing that I'm curious about is as you were writing the book and as you put the book Mm -hmm. together, did you practice ultra learning in terms of (laughs) putting the book together? Yeah, you know... You know, it's funny because like in the book, I try to document these kind of weird and interesting ultra learning feats. We were talking about Tristan de Montebello doing his public speaking project. Like that's certainly unusual. Most people don't 
do something like that, which is why it makes it story worthy, I guess. But I think most of the things that would qualify as ultra learning that people do are things that people do all the time. And one of them is, you know, doing research for a book is a kind of ultra learning project, but it's one that many, many people have done before. I'm certainly not the first person who's like, I'm going to write a book about something. I better learn a bit about it. And so for me, I kind of took two approaches. One, I wanted to find lots of good stories, not only of contemporary people like like Tristan and other examples of people who are alive today who you maybe haven't heard of before that have done incredible things, but then also lots of biographies. So, you know, I have like, you know, huge stacks of biographies in my bookshelf of like famous people and trying to find those like, like five pages or 10 pages where they talk a little bit about what they actually did when they were learning. And so I spend a lot of time looking at that. And then a lot of time looking at the scientific research, you can kind of see it. Maybe I can tilt my thing up here. So like behind, behind the paintbrushes back there, I've got big binders of uh, journal articles and research trying to figure out, you know, what is the science behind how people learn? And it was really fascinating because as soon as you start to see that learning isn't this, we kind of make this mystical quality of it. Like what is learning? And then it's just some kind of magical activity that you do with your brain. And some people are good at it and some people aren't. But if you see it as a systematic process that there are certain ingredients, let's say, that go into learning successfully. And once you see how people have studied those ingredients and how they piece together, then you kind of lay them out and you say, oh, this is, you know, it's like a cookbook. It's like, okay, these are the different things that I can mix together to make learning successful. And if I have those ingredients, I'll be successful. And if I don't have those ingredients, you know, I, I might struggle a bit more. And so I think that that's often what happens is that the things that we are bad at learning, we maybe we're lacking some of the ingredients and we weren't really realizing that we were lacking some of the ingredients. And if you can kind of like sort of, again, to go back to our beginning of our discussion, kind of debug your own learning process, you can often identify, oh, okay, here's what I was kind of screwing up and maybe I can try this differently. Or the opposite, oh, here's what I was doing really well when I got good at that skill and I didn't even realize it. And so I think if you can study your own successes and failures, you can improve how you how you get better at things, right? Yeah, this is, this is sort of relevant for me flying airplanes and every time I learn to fly a different yeah. type of airplane, like as you progress through your career, you have to go through these uh, mm-hmm. type rating courses, they say. And usually it's you get, you know, five <laughs> thick manuals dropped on the desk yeah. in front of you and they say, well, now learn, you know, to learn about this airplane, mm-hmm. uh, which is horrible for me. So I was trying to understand the way I learned and I'm interested to hear you kind of break it yeah. down, see how, how I came up with this or... <laughs> why this works so for me mm-hmm. it was like reading a textbook without a visual context for it was mm-hmm. like torture and so for me going and watching pilots fly this type of airplane and just seeing an example mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. just do a normal flight in the simulator watch them fly it and then straight away now i've i'm starting to get a model i might not understand exactly what they're doing but now mm-hmm. i have a visual model in my head and then i would try it myself so yeah. let me go fly the airplane let me try it. And then I'll go into the textbooks and the textbooks. Now I have this context. I've seen it. I've tried it. And now the textbook will help me actually fill in the gaps of what I wasn't understanding or why I was doing something. Yeah. And then the fourth thing, which was like a bonus round was then teach it to somebody else. <laughs> and mm-hmm. really no, the learning no, I think that's, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. That's a really good approach to, to learning things. And I think there's a few things from the research that we, we kind of noticed. So one of them is that this sort of model that we often teach things in school is that we want things to be really abstract and really general because what's the point in making a course that's only going to be relevant to one student? It's a mass market model. Like even right. if 
we have, you know, one-on-one tutoring occasionally or feedback from the teacher. We need to generalize and systematize. And a lot of education, if you look at it that way, is a process of how do we how do we make sure that we get all the people getting exactly the same instruction, right? Because we don't want individual differences. And so the challenge of this is that there is decades of research showing that when you give people this kind of abstract, sterilized, removed from the environment kind of learning, they don't transfer it very well. So transfer is this idea of that you learn something in one context and then you try to apply it in a different context. And the research just shows that we're not very good at this. So, so one example that I just love this example, that there was a study done of economics majors, and they found that they did not do better on questions of economic reasoning than non-economics majors. So you go through a bunch of school, you do a bunch of economics question. Well, what was the point of doing this, right? Well, it wasn't to pass tests, right? Like the point was that you should know something so that when someone presents you an economic problem, you can reason about it better, right? And yet it doesn't seem to work out that way. And there are many examples of this where people, once you slightly change what the problem is being asked, they completely fail. And I think There's been a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of ink spilled about how to fix this problem in education. But I think as a learner, as someone who's individually approaching it, the strategy is pretty clear that we need to have concrete examples and we need to have direct experiences of things in order to learn from it. So what you were just saying is, I think, a clear example that the two ways that people learn things is that they learn it through direct experience themselves and through watching someone else do it. This is sort of how we've evolved to learn things that you you learn from direct experience as well as, oh, someone is going to model to you how to do this and then you watch it from them. And so I think, you know, the fact that you were learning this way doesn't mean that you were a bad student, but rather that you're just a typical human being, that that's how you best learn is that you watch someone else flying a plane. And then when you're reading the textbook, maybe you can kind of now hook some of these abstract ideas onto that direct experience. And so one of the principles I talk about in the book, directness, is really just all about this idea of how we can make sure that when we're learning things, we're doing it in such a way that it transfers to the situation that we care about, like flying a plane. Beautiful. So how do, I'm curious, like, because there are people that can read a textbook and yeah. get it. So what's the difference? Is it? Is it they're, they're able to build a picture in their mind or while they're reading or they don't need a picture mm. to comprehend something? So that's an interesting question in its own right of like, what are people doing well, the people who can really read from books? I don't know whether I have a, like a perfectly scientific answer for you. So I'm going to speculate right now. So just like get the warning, speculation warnings on, on, the, on the podcast here for everyone listening. <laughs> but one of the people that I studied in the book was uh, Richard Feynman. So Richard Feynman is a Nobel Prize winning physicist, uh, one of my kind of personal heroes for things. And he kind of was somewhat famous, not just for being like a genius level physicist, you know, one that even other physicists were saying, oh, this guy is a genius, but also because he was quite explicit in his sort of mental processes. So a lot of people, you read their biography and it's just shrouded in mystery. They have really no, nothing to say about what went on in their head when they were doing things. Whereas Richard Feynman has, you know, said a lot of things about how he thinks and how he learns and his personal experiences. And so one of the things that really struck me is that he, he mentioned when he was learning mathematics, that one of his tools is that whenever someone was talking about abstract ideas, so they're proving some mathematical theorem, he's following it along with some mental visualization of the idea they're talking about. So they're taught like his, his example is, you know, someone's talking about a set, okay, a ball, and then it's a disjoint set. Okay, there's two balls. And then he's like, oh, and then there's this and it's fuzzy and it's green and it's changing colors and slipping around. And then he was saying that like his approach is that someone would state some mathematical theorem 
And instead of going through a bunch of calculations at this point, he's been going through this concrete example and he's just like, oh, is this true of my hairy ball thing? No. So, okay, the theorem is false. And I don't want to say that that's easy to do. So following, it might be that some people are better able to visualize than others and that might help them with, particularly, I think, with math and physics. But it's also the case that your ability to uh, manipulate mental objects can often be trained. So one of the studies that I thought was really interesting is that this capacity to like think in terms of, you know, abstract visual spaces is related to what we think of as visual working memory. So working memory, the right metaphor of that is it's like the workbench of your mind. It's like where it's where you get all the mental pieces and you assemble them together into new thoughts and actions and stuff. And so one of those is is theorized to be the visual spatial sketch pad, which is a part of the mind where you deal with visual stuff. So maps and spaces and objects and people have different amounts of working memory for dealing with these situations. So that if, for example, they'll give tests where like they'll have like a cube that has different faces on it. And then they'll show you like two dimensional orientations of the cube and ask you like which ones match the cube above. And like some people are better at this than other people because it's in their head, they can just rotate the 3D object and be like, well, this one doesn't match, right? And what they found is that if you give people different strategies, so you give them sort of like, how do you break apart this problem? So maybe you can't rotate in your head, but you can say, okay, you know, you're seeing three of the faces at the same time. So kind of unravel the first one first and then mentally compare it to this one. And is it, you know, this is top, this is left. And if you go through this, you can actually get people to perform better on these tasks. So there is a sense that I think being able to have this sort of mental capacity to deal with these things, while there is differences in innate talent, there's also a sense that you can learn strategies to cope with the fact that maybe you do have a difficult time imagining what's going on in the example that you can like slow it down and try to, you know, work through an example on a piece of paper or like you were saying, try to teach it to someone else so that you can kind of free up some of your own thinking capacity. So what might happen in one second for someone takes you a few minutes, but you can still get to the same outcome. Brilliant. Talking a lot about like, you know, the learning, yeah. the analytical side of it, but mm-hmm. this is really important to people, right? Like the ability to learn some of these things can have a, um, can be life-changing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Really high, I just think that's how much. <laughs> um, cracking, cracking, Louis, yeah. <laughs> uh, what are some of the stories in, in the book that, you know, sort of like the feel-good stories that really people... Yeah. Well, you know, one of the examples which I think, uh, you know, it's funny because this is someone that we are both coming in contact with is Tristan Montebello. And I remember he told me after after his project had finished. And I, like, I have a quote in my books. So I believe I'm quoting it, but I hope I'm not paraphrasing. But he said something like, I didn't think it would be life-changing. Like it was literally life-changing. And the thing I think a lot of people think is that when you're learning, it's kind of hard to project who you could become going through this effort. So I think wow. someone is imagining, you know what, I'm going to get in shape. And now I want to imagine what that would be like. Well, there's a certain sense that it's easier to imagine what it would like to be, be in shape than it is to imagine what it would be like to learn something new, because to learn something new is to actually have information that you don't have right now. So you're missing the, like to learn something is really to be missing the picture that you have right now. And so I think one of the things I found in doing this research for this book is that a lot of the people come and talk to me is they say, you know what? Yeah, yeah, getting good at this skill, you know, that was great. And I'm really happy about it. But going through this ultra learning process, like it's just completely changed what I feel like I'm capable of and, and, and the ways that it can impact my life. So very often being able to learn one hard skill, it just like opens up the world in front of you. So you can feel like, well, 
if I could learn this, what else could I learn? What are the other things that, you know, I was too afraid to try before, or I thought maybe weren't possible for me. And I think that this is even more true when you've struggled with learning in the past, you know, like if, if you're the kind of person that, you know, you've struggled with math and then you get calculus, like this is, this is such an empowering and inspiring example. So in some ways it's very much the people who feel like, you know, learning is not for them or learning X isn't for them that are the people who get the most benefit. Because as soon as you do a, do overcome those limitations, it's kind of like you're rewriting your own story of your life. In your experience, what, what was the thing that had the biggest impact on your life? Like, was it a language? Was it, you know, a moment where you connected with someone in a different language? There's, there's been a lot. Yeah, there's been a lot. I think, um, so we talked about one, my kind of French experience of meeting Benny Lewis and kind of reshifting kind of how I thought about that learning process was huge. We didn't really mention it that much, but I did this project called the MIT challenge, which was transformative for me because that was my first real like attempt at doing like kind of an ultra learning project. And not only did, again, it have like a life-changing impact of like, you know, eight years later, I'm writing about it in this book. So it's, it's had a profound impact on my own life, but also doing it was really transformative for me because before I did that project, I really had this belief in my head that if you want to learn something well, you have to go to school. And I think a lot of people have that belief, right? I think we have that belief that, you know, if I want to, you know, get good at this or or have other people recognize me as being good at this, you know, I have to get my master's or my MBA or, or, or I have to, you know, spend four years studying this in school. And so for me, going through this process of, you know, using online resources and using these resources to teach myself a skill, I realized that that just wasn't true. And the experience I had after doing that was not just, okay, I've learned some computer science. That's great. It was what are all the other things that, you know, I could learn or what are all the other things that I could be good at that just in my head, I was kind of like putting up this barrier of like, well, I didn't go to school to study that. So yeah, that's too bad. Right. Uh, and so for me, that was a really transformative experience as well. And I think it's just each one is sort of built on itself. And so, you know, the more I've done these projects, the more excited I have been to do new ones as well. I really love that because it, it you know, I, I really get that it is so much deeper for a lot of people and, and, and certainly for yeah. me. Is that even if you can just use the process, if you could read your book, Ultra Learning, and and, yeah. <laughs> and actually learn one thing, you, you mm-hmm. could actually prove a whole belief system about yourself wrong. Yeah. Well, I think the way I feel about it, and it's related to what you're saying, is that we talk about our past experiences like it's an immutable truth. Yeah. Like that there weren't a million different ways that it could have happened. And I think Again, the goal I have is not to give people more confidence. It's not to tell people you can do it. It's to say that you have no idea what you can and can't do. Yeah. That, like I kind of want people to fundamentally doubt all the things that they've told about themselves. And I think that's kind of scary because even when the things you say about yourself are bad, there's some comfort in the certainty of them, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're terrible about something and you're like, you at least know what kind of person you are. And I think that it's somewhat scary to say that maybe you don't know what kind of person you are, but there's also some freedom in that because once you realize that, you know what, you've actually only been alive for a couple decades on this planet and you've only experienced, you know, 0.0001% of all the possible things you could have experienced. And, you know, the story of your life is based on just this minuscule kind of fraction of, of possible experience that you really don't know a lot about yourself. And so that's, I think, the exciting thing, but also the kind of scary thing about approaching learning this way is that all the things that you said to yourself that you're bad at or that you can't learn or that you can't do, I mean, who knows, right? Who knows what you could do? Yeah. One thing I was curious about is that you kind of had this mm-hmm. angle of 
uh, how this could uh, shift your career or benefit your career. Yeah. And yeah. For our listeners, the majority of them are entrepreneurs or aspire mm-hmm. to be entrepreneurs or starting out on their, their business journey. And I know for me, you know, coming from being a pilot, there was yeah. it's not a lot of carryover into starting a business. <laughs> it was like a ton of right. like, it was like marketing, like mm-hmm. everything uh, that I had to learn. But how could this help someone going into business? So the way I like to think about it is that, well, first of all, if you're an entrepreneur, you're kind of learning constantly. So I think even if you don't think of yourself as like, oh, I'm a learner or I'm, you know, because some people get this like idea in their head of learning and then they think like school. And they're like, well, I'm not doing something like school. So I'm not doing this learning business. Well, that, that's nonsense, right? Like studying is a kind of narrow type of learning. <laughs> and maybe it's not the thing that you need to do, but that doesn't mean that you're not learning. And so I think, you know, I, I'm also I'm also an entrepreneur. I also have my own business. And so I know for a fact that if there's anyone who needs to know how to learn well, it's entrepreneurs because in a regular business, you can just, you know, get good at that one skill. Like if you're an accountant, you just, you just do accounting and you know, it's hard and you work hard at it, but it's just, you can stick to that, right? So once you figure out how to learn accounting, you're done. You can just keep doing that. Whereas an entrepreneur, you're constantly learning how to do things that aren't really in your wheelhouse. You know, you, you know, maybe you're, you're like, okay, you're, you're really good with people, but you're crap with technology. And all of a sudden, like, well, I need to have these 80 million different pieces of software working properly to get my business working. Or, you know what, you're really good with writing, but maybe you're not good at hiring people. Or when your accountant prepares your tax statements, you have no idea what she's talking about. Or, you, have, you know, you don't know how to invest your money or you don't, there's a million different things to learn. So I think to a certain extent, entrepreneurs already embrace this idea of learning. And so for me, I think the right way to think about ultra learning in this context is just to take the process of learning that you're already doing and just try to see what are the little tweaks you could make to make that more effective and efficient. And I think especially because we've talked about this, a lot of us have this model as entrepreneurs to think about, well, learning is, you know, I'm going to take a lot of books, just read a lot of books. And reading a lot of books is really great. But again, it gets to this problem we had before that sometimes you don't transfer the things you learned in books. So you read this great book and then like, where's the impact on your business? Maybe you're not sure. And so one of the things that I think is is really important is again, looking at these little dials, if you're going to be spending time doing learning, you should try to optimize that process so that you're actually applying the things that, that matter to you. Yeah. And it strikes me like the book reading thing, we already yeah. have a process. So we're actually starting, whether we know it or not, we, we already mm-hmm. have Way that we learn, where it's like, oh man, I need to learn sales. For me, I'd be like, okay, who who's the best in sales, and can I do like a twelve course mm. with them, and yeah. kind of under them. But that's I've never thought is that the best way for me to learn. It's just I already have a process, and that's it. Well, and I think you're absolutely right. Like everyone has their own process, and the goal isn't to like completely replace that with something totally alien and different for you, but more to look at like what are maybe some of the drawbacks of the process that I'm using, and how could I optimize them. So one of the strategies that I I talk about in the book, which I think is really important, is the idea of directness or the idea of basically whenever you start learning something, you should be thinking about not only where you can apply it, but maybe like what are some concrete situations you could practice it in? Because I think a lot of us have sort of unconsciously imbibed from the school system the idea that learning is mostly about reading and uh, listening and not about doing Yeah. And so we think about where does the learning take place in your typical classroom? Most people would say, well, it's when you're sitting in front of the teacher and they're lecturing. Whereas I would argue most of the learning takes place when you do the homework. And so often when we're thinking about things, we spend a lot of time figuring out what is the 
lectures or videos or courses or books that we're taking and a lot less on what is the actual practice we're doing. And so I think you're right. If you're taking a course, very often that's built into it. Like there is some practice built into it. You can actually apply it right away. But how many of us, you know, we watch all the videos and then, you know, we don't go through all the worksheets or we don't go through all the exercises. They say, hey, you know what, you should really do this. And then we think, you know, yeah, okay, I got something out of that course. But, you know, probably what you really would have got out of the course was was doing the exercises or even things like feedback. You know, how are you getting feedback? What feedback signals are you paying attention to? There's there's so many little facets to learning that I think are so interesting that, you know, often you're doing things pretty well, but sometimes you're not. And, and sometimes it's not clear why, why you're, you're not doing it well. I, I know one of the studies that I covered in the book, which just like blew me away, was that uh, they divided participants into different groups and they got some of them to study them using a repeated review approach. It means you get your notes, you just read it over and over again, which is like very common. This is how a lot of students study. And the other students, they got to do a free recall approach where you read it once and then you shut the book and you try to remember everything that you can. And the interesting thing is after this was done, they asked them how well you learned the material. And the people who did repeated review said, yep, I've got it. I've learned it really well. The people who did free recall said, no way. I don't remember anything. I'm trying to recall it. I can't remember anything. But when they did the tests, it's the people who did the free recall that did better than those who did repeated review. So there's all these little quirks of our own learning that we're not even aware of, right? So how many of us are, are kind of inadvertently doing some approach because that's well, it just seems the natural approach. We don't realize that, oh, if we adjusted it, we could get more effective results. Awesome, Scott. Hey, uh, hold up the book. I know you got a copy there. Oh, yeah, sure. This is Ultra Learning right here. My name here. On the- <laughs> yeah. That's the book, Ultra Learning. You can get it uh, yeah. everywhere, right? Yeah, so you can. It's published by Harper Business. You should be able to get it on Amazon. Um, it's going to be out August sixth in the U.S. and August eighth in the U.K. Uh, if you're looking at the U.K. version, it's going to be a yellow book. So if you see a yellow book, it's it's also by me. But I don't know why they like to use different covers. And uh, it's going to be out August sixth and August eighth. And uh, there's also an audible version. So if you like to listen to books, uh, you can listen to my voice narrating it as well. If you're not sick of listening to me after this last hour, um, then you can get the book and uh, you can also find links to it on my website at scotthm.com. Awesome. Uh, hey, thank you, Scott. Thanks for coming on. There's uh, the last question we ask every guest. Sure. Like for the point of mm-hmm. balancing it out. Yeah, yeah. The conversation is, is there a dark side that you have? Is there a, like a dark side that you have to watch? And how have you learned to embrace yeah. that part? Well, I'm certainly a flawed individual. I think that there's probably a lot of weaknesses that I have. Um, I think if you talk to any of my close friends or family, they would point out some of them for you. But I, I think the thing that I would point out, and I think that it is kind of a dark side, that it can be useful, but it can also be a weakness, is that I tend to be an anxious person. I tend to be a perfectionist kind of person. And so writing this book evolved, involved a considerable amount of emotional turmoil as I was sort of like imagining, you know, critics, imagining people who don't like me or saying the worst possible things about it. And I think that definitely led to procrastination at times. But I think the kind of flip side of that is that it also means that I really care about doing it well. And 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 so I, I worked really, really hard to make it the best possible book that I could. I know that's a little bit of a cheat answer. That's like the job interview. What's your weaknesses? Well, I work too hard and I'm a perfectionist, but I think you can definitely have a dark side as well. And so, you know, to answer your question, I would probably say that's what I, that's what I struggle with.
start uh, saying that this is the final copy. This is what we're going with. Yeah, and I think it was a really hard time. Every time I had to start writing a chapter, it would just be kind of like, oh my God, like I don't want to do this because it's just, it's hard to, to get to that sort of impetus of that um, motivation, especially when you spent, you know, weeks or months researching for a particular point just to be like, where do I start? How do I do this? And how do I do it well? Certainly a lot of rewriting, a lot of editing, a lot of drafting, but hopefully my uh, mild turmoil has been worth it. You can enjoy the finished product without as much stress and difficulty. (laughs) (laughs) We'll appreciate it as we go through. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah, it's definitely a disease of a lot of high performers, I think. Yeah. It kind of sounds like a noble trait, like you say, but um, the anxiety and the overthinking that comes with it can be quite damaging. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, thanks for sharing that with us. Scott Young, beautiful to have you here. Thanks for sharing. Oh, thank thanks you so much for having me. So much thank you. It. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks. Well, thanks, man. Thank you, guys. Thanks for being with us. As always, this was a fantastic conversation. If you think somebody would enjoy it, please take a minute to share it around. If you want to leave any comments, if you want to ask any questions of myself or Scott, uh, bang them in the comments below. And I will love you guys forever. Thanks for joining. Have a fantastic week. Uh, I'll have a week off next week with the trip to Peru, but I'll be back in two weeks with uh, another episode for you guys. Uh, And that will be episode number 89. That was The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life.